Politics, finance, art, culture, world affairs, it's all so lame. Why? <laughs> Renaissance man Michael Anton is here to tell you the answer. I'm James Polis. This is Zero Hour. Michael Anton is the Jack Roth Senior Fellow at the Claremont Institute and secondarily a lecturer at Hillsdale. He previously served as a former national security official in the Trump administration and as a speechwriter for Pete Wilson, Rudy Giuliani, and George W. Bush. He's the author of The Flight 93 Election and Toward a Sensible, Coherent Trumpism, among many books which we will discuss. Welcome, Michael. How are you? Good, thanks. All right, so, like, what is happening in this world? Like, who is in charge <laughs> and why does it all suck so much? Yeah. I don't know who's in charge, and I suspect that nobody is. So this is like a perennial question that we debate. You and I debate it. Many of our friends debate it. I debate it with colleagues, right? So we're both, right? We're both trained to be political scientists. The fundamental question of political science is who rules and to what end? And I can actually answer the second half of that more easily than I can answer the first half. Like, I'm a political scientist, and I can't tell you who the sovereign is or who's in charge. I know what the parchment says. I know what the theory of the United States says, but I don't see that in operation. You know it's not Joe Biden, right? It's Joe Biden in charge. Some people want to say, well, it's the chief of staff. I can't even name the current chief of staff. It was this Ron Klain, Washington fixture, yeah. but he's gone and replaced with some dude. I don't even know who it is anymore. Right. But then these bureaucrats have all this power. But then so do corporate CEOs and so do tech lords and so do foundation presidents and university presidents and in a way even faculty, although less than administrators. But like their power is diffuse. It's distributed in today's world. And so my working hypothesis and it's working because our friend uh, and, and critic Tom West, who um, you know, never lets me get away with anything. So he says that he's, he, he's not convinced by my notion that the actual sovereign is a kind of doctrine, a hive mind doctrine that everybody follows and they know how to follow. Um, but I haven't heard anything better yet. Tom thinks that there is some power, you know, but when we try to identify, well, who is it? Like, exactly, who are these people? Like, you know, are, is there a conference room where they meet? I mean, Davos, I guess, sort of, but once a year getting together in Davos for five days. I don't think, I think that sets the tone for what the hive mind believes. That sets authoritative opinion or helps cement it. But I don't think those people are actually running things from that institution. They're all very powerful, so they go back and they run things from their own institution. But why does everybody always agree on everything? That's the question. Then the uh, analogy that I've used before is like a flock of birds. We've all seen it. They just all of a sudden all turn at the same time. The murmuration. Yeah. And there is no bird in front saying, okay, go left, right? At yeah. least we don't, know, we don't think so. But somehow they know, <laughs> right? And the hive is like that. The last time I saw the hive confused was at the very beginning of COVID when it didn't know, are we going to play this down? Because remember the, in the early days, it was, this is not a thing. You don't need masks. And also Nancy Pelosi was saying, go have dinner in Chinatown. Because yeah, you if, are a racist right, if you don't, you don't go to your local wet market. Yeah, if you don't go to Chinatown, you're a racist, right? It was, and then they, they it took them about four to six weeks to figure out, no, we're going to make this into a huge deal yeah. and do Fauci lockdowns. Like, don't put on a mask, right, this is a waste right, of time. You know, and, and so on and so forth. It didn't quite know what to do. But once it coalesced, once it became clear that like the hive thinks the following, 
Now we're still with it. Now we're hearing right now, I don't know when this will air or be available, but it's early September 2023, and we're hearing kind of rumblings that, well, maybe they're going to bring mask mandates back because of variant X or whatever. Now, I think that's going to go down a lot less easily than it did last time. I also think you're going to see, if they try to do that, a lot more bifurcation between, let's just say, red and blue parts of the United States. I also think certain countries in Europe, like, you know, Hungary started out, Hungary is supposedly the the conservative or the, the left-wing boogeyman country, right? right. They're, they're very illiberal and so on. I've been there a couple of times. I'm actually going back twice this fall, so I like it. That's clearly. very illiberal of you. Right. right. And, but like they had a really strict COVID policy in the early days, surprising for mm-hmm. a country that is supposed to be so outside the mainstream of managerial administrative state neoliberal opinion. But then the Orban government fairly early realized this isn't working and it's stupid and they dropped all of it. So I think you could see that bifurcation maybe in Europe if it comes back more authoritarian countries, you know, unfortunately, Britain has become one more authoritarian. I didn't say authoritarian necessarily. But even countries that you think of as having super nanny states like Sweden went the other way and yeah. never locked down. So I think yeah. if they try to do it again, you're going to see more of a split both in the United States and in the West more broadly. Uh, and that may you know, kind of disturb the hive mind or it'll be the places where the hive mind has the least power will do the least um, COVID. Yeah, well, it's, it's becoming like a lifestyle choice now where people are like, I just like it better that way. I feel safer and I, you know, I wear the mask. And yeah, it's, it's a, it's a signifier. You can, you can opt in. And if you get enough people to opt in, then, you know, are you really going to be... If you fly a lot, which I know you do and I do, yeah. right, you will see that there's just some dead enders who are going to wear masks on planes and then airports forever. Yeah. I think it's, I would guesstimate it at under 20%. But that's not nothing when you think no, about how many I people mean, are th- flying. There are sometimes those flights where it's like the dead of winter and you know everyone's like hacking up a lung yeah. when you're on there. And I, I would just zip myself up into a bag if I could <laughs> just like just to survive without having to come down with a head cold. Uh, but I think you're right. Like, you know, there's, there is this disorganization, but there is this kind of concerted, concerted movement, uh, whether you want to call it the swarm or the hive or whatever. Um, and, and, and the best analogy that I can think of is like medieval times when you had like Christendom and then you had like zillions of different principalities and monarchies and kind of all these different kinds of regimes. Everyone's sort of scrambling and trying to figure out what to do. That period of time doesn't get a lot of attention from political philosophy, unless you're talking about our our Catholic monarchist friends out there who are like, no, this is the key that explains it all. Um, It didn't really seem relevant at all until kind of tech washed through everything is kind of changing the configurations. Uh, does does political philosophy sort of give us a window into so. that kind I of mean, crazy quilt moment? As you know, I spend lots of time studying Machiavelli, and he's criticizing that exact notion. Like his view is Christianity, and I always have to preface this by saying I'm just summarizing him. I'm not endorsing this because you know, Christian. When you explain what he's doing. There's always going to be some Christian in your audience who thinks that you're attacking their Do face. you stand with right. Machiavelli? Are, why do you read this? But Well, you know, I just find it interesting. And also, he has a good sense of humor. Um, that he thinks Christianity is both too unifying and, and not unifying enough, right? It, it allows for this division between pope and emperor, between peoples and, and princes. But, you know, are you, do you follow your local priest or do you follow your local baron or whatever? But then too much of a unity where there's this doctrine that should apply to everything and that is the ultimate judge of what's right and what's wrong. And Machiavelli thinks that has stifled philosophy. And part of his aim, I think, is to liberate philosophy, what he thinks is theological supervision or even theological imprisonment. And maybe we do face something like that again. I mean, I wrote for you a couple of years ago that there are striking parallels between 
Machiavelli's criticism of his time and our time, that we do have a kind of stultifying doctrine. You know, if, the, if, if he was worried about the institutional church and the monasteries, you know, our monasteries are the universities. That's where the doctrine is cooked and baked and, and set, okay? And to some extent promulgated, but then there's a network of, of um, distribution platforms downstream, if you will, from the universities that make sure the doctrine gets out there. Machiavelli would say, and I think does say indirectly in Prince chapter 13, that um, the priests are a kind of auxiliary army, not in, they're in the service of the Pope or of the doctrine, not in the service of the sovereigns of their countries. I'd say that's sort of true of university faculty, but also the opinion making and the opinion enforcing classes. I mean, I don't know, I don't want to like tick off any of your friends or people that you know, uh, but like wh what is the purpose of like Vox.com or these explainer sites? They're enforcers of doctrine in the same way that the priests in the medieval times were like, this is what you're supposed to believe, this is a heresy. And just do what I say and believe what I say. It's kind of eerily similar. Similar. Well, it, it, it's interesting. I mean, you know, usually when when we have these debates about neo feudalism or whatever, it's like there are the serfs and then there are the nobles, and yeah. there's nothing in the middle, and that's why it sucks. But it's a lot more complicated than that. You have yeah. all these petty fiefdoms, and sort of everyone's kind of jockeying around, and some people the alliances are shifting, and the, all the uh, the, uh, the, the, the real, uh, conflicts are kind of settled, you know, behind the curtain or behind the scenes in some ways, kind of like, like mafia culture, the lack of a strong sovereign in many cases, or like a really compromised sovereign, uh, from, uh, from the standpoint of like an, an Orthodox Christian, right? A lot of these guys would actually just sort of look at the Western Europe that you described and, and laugh, right? Where it's like, well, there isn't, there was never supposed to be a Pope. It was supposed to be sort of really disaggregated. Uh, religious yeah. authority. You have these different patriarchates, and no one is is really challenging the emperor. No one's trying to be the emperor. Uh, they will check the emperor when the emperor starts to say things like, "Well, you know, we just won this uh, this pyrrhic victory over the Persians for the umpteenth time in in Byzantium, and so I'm just going to canonize everyone who died in that battle." And and then the the patriarch, "Well, no, you're not going to do that." And there are those kinds of frictions. But it wasn't really the kind of situation that you had unfold in the West, where yes, you know, the the pope did have temporal power. Yeah. And then you have someone like uh, Henry VIII come along and say, well, now I'm the Pope, but just of England. And you can see this thing sort of start to like fracture and fragment. And it's just reaction after reaction. You know, Luther and you've got Zwingli and you've got all these other Protestants coming along. And uh, we, we, the West, were kind of thrown in this trajectory uh, that is still not really resolved itself. You, no. you still have a camp of people who are like, it should be the union of temporal and spiritual authority, whether it's an Anglican model or a Catholic model. Then, then you got the fact, well, no, it's got to be like the Anabaptists. Like we just keep making it up every generation and it's only adult baptism and you can't raise your kids the way you want to because adults have to make choices for themselves. And then, yes, the monasteries were thrown out and then we have these sort of fake monasteries that replace them. Um, it does seem like we're kind of stuck in this kind of loop and uh and whether that's because you know christianity had some issues in the west or because uh we we inherited this kind of structure and then uh the elites come in and they say well we're we're going to keep the structure but we're going to junk the church and i think it was like like nietzsche's quote uh it is it is the church but not it, it's poison that repels us that was like one of his his aphorisms i mean machiavelli would world? say that the problem begins with christianity itself that well, it actually begins before Christianity. It begins with the Roman conquest of the ancient world, that you no longer have independent states, independent polis, these, I don't even know what the Greek plural polis is, but you know, roughly translated as city-state. We don't want to go into all the reasons why you're not supposed to translate it as city-state, because that would take too long. But they're, they're, they all get conquered. They all get assimilated into one giant borg with an emperor, 
right? And Christianity is only possible in Machiavelli's analysis once the ancient world is unified. And basically, millions of people become disenfranchised, where you're conquered by the Romans. You don't have an independent civic authority. You don't have status as a citizen. I mean, some people, many people did, but most in the Roman Empire didn't. And, you know, you a, a god comes along and appeals to you specifically on the basis of your disenfranchisement and weakness, and it's very appealing, right? And that god says, I recognize that you, my followers, don't have temporal power, and I don't offer you temporal power. I offer you spiritual solace in this world and paradise in the next world if you have faith and behave yourselves. We, we don't have to get into faith not works here either because that's another theological uh, co controversy that uh, is sort of um, too deep for now. Um, but, but what it does is it severs the connection between civil and religious law, right? Which in the ancient polis, whether pagan or uh, um, Jewish, because there's really only one monotheistic ancient polis, and that yeah. is ancient Israel, right? But the gods were the city gods. The gods are the gods of the city, and the god lays down the law. And there's no distinction between religious and civil law, right? We would say, well, you know, religious law is, uh, you know, for a Catholic, you know, don't eat meat on Fridays, or, you know, observe Lent or something. And civil law is drive on the right side, not the left side of the road. Um, and you could say, well, what about, you know, thou shalt not steal? That's sort of both, the Ten Commandments, right? But it, Christianity recognizes, you know, Roman law only. That's the meaning of that famous passage in, in the gospel where somebody asks Jesus, what, what am I supposed to do about these Romans? Do I pay my taxes or do I not pay my taxes? And he says, pay your taxes, right? That's civil law. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, render unto God what is God's. I'm not bringing you civil law the way the Jewish tradition does, right. the way Moses did, and the way the pagans have. Well, that was the great scandal where they think the Messiah is going to come and raise yeah. an army and overthrow the and Romans. Machiavelli says that's a problem that has never been solved. And in fact, you know, more than Machiavelli, I think uh, my teacher, Harry Jaffa, said that this is a problem that modernity was intended to solve and that the American founding ultimately solved. Or, I mean, Harry, well, I shouldn't call him Harry, Professor Jaffa, sorry, <laughs> um, thought that it had solved it. We can also debate that for another day, but that was certainly the intention, that this distinction between civil and religious law had to be resolved some way, and the only way was to found, uh, find a new basis for the rational law, okay? And that was, was reason in, in an understanding of, of the inalienable rights of man, which are created by God, but men have to go and write the law themselves. There's no, you know, we know where U.S. law comes from. It comes from a convention in 1787 and then statutes passed by Congress, right? It does not come from divinely revealed word the same way Moses brings the tablets from Sinai and takes the rest directly from God. Or the way, you know, Plato begins his, his dialogue called The Laws, where the, these three men, an, an Athenian, a Cretan, and a, not Cretan as in, you know, human ape or whatever, <laughs> From the island of Crete, from Crete, uh, please, uh, and, and a Spartan, all say yes. All law comes from gods, and they discuss the origin of, of their laws. Well, it's Zeus or some god, specifically speaking to uh, a, a human or a demigod, who then lays down the law. Right? That connection has been severed now. And uh, if I may plug a little book by a colleague of ours that's just out that I will be reviewing for the CRB called "The Narrow Passage." It's an odd title. I actually don't know what the title necessarily means, um, but I know what the book means because I've read it. Uh, this is Glenn Elmer's book, and he basically says this has been a since that connection was severed, human kind of political and spiritual existence has been in flux, and no one's figured out a way to kind of repair the rift. Well, so you 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 have Machiavelli, and then by some accounts, Machiavelli is sort of the birth of yeah. uh, of modern republicanism, small r republicanism. That's kind of the standard yes. view. But this is a long way from uniting spiritual and temporal power. Yes. 
So how does that tension play out? Where nowadays, America 2023, um, a lot of the suck seems to be um, the result of large numbers of people saying, you know what, we just need to basically establish a doctrine yeah. and we need to treat that doctrine as something even higher than sort of like a sort yeah. of Lincoln civil religion. You know, this is going to be like, we are going to create a, a code, a caste system and basically, think, and it's going to be a sacred caste and system. And I think that they, um, I, I think, Number one, those people are sincere. Number two, they probably the people who are saying that probably have a better grasp of the underlying problem than the people who, you know, ha- pose other solutions just kind of within the narrow understanding of modernity or where we are. The problem, as I see it, and Glenn's book gets to this, and we've both been writing about it, and I'll plug now two of my own things. I just reviewed Regime Change by Patrick Deneen for the CRB. It's still paywall, but eventually, you know, they'll take it out from behind the paywall. It's a great review. He was on the show not long ago, and, uh, and, uh, yeah, I want to hear about it. I like the guy, but I laid out, I do, I really personally like him, um, but I laid out, you know, disagreements or just problems. Like, well, what about this? What about this? What about this? And another thing that I just finished writing today, which I get, you know, I've been in a kind of running debate with Paul Gottfried, who's a former... Uh, I think he was, a, was, he was a history or a philosophy professor. Anyway, he's very well versed in ideas, whether he's a historian or a philosopher and the academic discipline, I don't one know. Of, one of the last living he, Marcuse students. He could have been either. I mean, he knows so much about all this stuff. And now he's obviously the editor of Chronicles, a paleoconservative magazine. So we've been just debating the existence of natural right for about, oh gosh, almost a year now. And it seems like he loves the topic. So whenever I say something, he wants to say something, and I say something, it just goes on and on. So I wrote about this again. What I, getting back to what you said, I don't think the willing or positing of a code is going to work. The reason why it worked in the ancient world is because the people actually believed. When Moses came down and he said, I got these tablets directly from God, everyone down there believed, A, that God really exists, and B, he really did get those tablets from that God. There's nothing fake about this, right? Nothing to take nothing away from our integralist friends. They could write the most perfect code imaginable and say, we're going to make this an authoritative code, and it's not going to go anywhere, because who's going to, who's going to accept it, right? Who's going to say, like, wait a minute, you're telling me you, a, a professor of political philosophy, and you, a law professor, and you, you know, whatever, a, a priest over here, you guys spoke to God, or you are God? They're just going to laugh. That's what's going well, to happen. Well, but this is this is a code. I mean, we're not talking about the in- integralists here now. We're talking about you will affirm yeah. your child's gender identity, or you will go to jail. Or yes. have your child taken away. Uh, you you will uh, not defend yourself um, yes. from uh, from from uh, theft or robbery or attacks on your your home, or else you will go to jail. I mean, you know, he's just going back to Nietzsche. He's like, well, where where do where does memory come from? How does anything stick in a society? Well, it's just like a, a, a repetition of suffering and the infliction of pain until finally people go, okay, all right, you know, I'm going to respect Well, this. that's an interesting, I, I, this worries me. If there's a white pill to be found, so I just was writing about this today, right? Okay, for Hobbes, the impulse to defend oneself is a natural passion. It's inborn. It can never go away. It's just part of man's being. And he can't help but want to defend himself from attack, from physical violent attack or theft or whatever. And so to try to prevent that is tyrannical and unjust. Uh, uh, to try to prevent this natural impulse, right? From, and that's the, almost the basis of his whole political philosophy is this, people have a fear of violent death. They deserve to be protected. And they, you know, in the state of nature, they have to protect themselves. So their prospects of doing so are kind of dicey in the state of nature. So you enter civil society where there's a Leviathan, a sovereign that will protect them. I, if there is a white pill, it's that that 
in natural impulse cannot be overcome. That, that the regime that we ever have now, I agree. I totally agree that it is hell bent on punishing you for protect, for exercising what I still consider to be your sovereign, natural, unalienable, God-given right to self-defense. If there is a human nature, human nature will simply rebel. This will not be allowed to succeed. People can't help it, right? If I see your fist coming at me and I have the ability to block it or do something, I'm going to block it or hit you back. I'm going to do that. And I won't even think about it. It's just a reaction that I'm going to have. And the regime, if it's going to try to make this a universal principle, it either has to totally terraform human nature and to make us something that we're not and have never been, or it's going to fail. And we're going to rebel. I don't know what's going to happen because I, you know, five, ten years ago, I would have confidently said they can't terraform and remake human nature. Now I sort of scratch my chin because as I get gloomier, as I get older, I go, I wonder, have they found a way to do something that nobody in the past, you know, 3,000 years has figured out how to do? And a, lot of people seem to, a lot of people seem to want into that system. Give me, give me the the death pod. Give me the, the external womb. Yeah. Give me the, the drip feed. Yes. It could be, though, I mean, there's no doubt that we're living through extraordinary times and periods of kind of insane moral panics. They have precedent. We could just be living through one of those before the natural immunities in, in, in the human race and the human soul wake up and just start fighting back. Now, I'm not the guy to go to for, like, you know, a whole bottle full of white pills. For that, you need somebody like Chris Rufo, who I love, by the way. I have nothing against Rufo. <laughs> Rufo is great. He's more optimistic than I am. So, I, I, but that could happen. It, it could also happen that we're at the end of a kind of overarching civilizational sect. I use the phrase as Machiavelli uses it, right? A kind of combination civilization, culture, religion, everything. And it's just, you know, it's playing itself out after a few thousand years and it's, 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 it's dying. But then something else will be reborn. On the, the the blackest pill would be they have we they've done something that every previous philosopher thinker theologian would have thought impossible. They've managed to denature humanity itself, and and just humanity has just decided it wants to either not be human anymore or it wants to die. Um, I really hope the latter is not true and fantastical, and that I will someday be laughed at for having even suggested that as a possibility. I would love that if like the obituary and I die. Somebody says, you know, Anton once said that it's possible humanity itself had just been overcome with a death wish and there was no way out. Isn't that the dumbest thing anybody ever said? That'd be fantastic if it was proved not true. I would cop to it being the dumbest thing ever said and I would, ta- I would tell you how relieved I was to have been proved wrong. I'm not, not to say that I'm asserting it. I'm just saying, what if it's possible? Big tech and big data have shown us time after time that they're not on our side. And yet, we're giving them access to record our personal lives 24-7 through our phones. Even when your phone is off, the microphones and cameras and location trackers still work. And that's just the tech people. What about your personal security when it comes to the crazy ex, someone stalking you, or even trying to blackmail you? It happens more than you might think. This is why I use the Refuge Ghost Sleeve. It's made in America, from American buffalo leather and it blocks 5G signals that other Faraday sleeves miss. And it's the only Faraday sleeve that blocks signal and sound. They added sound blocking panels on each side that keep conversations private. This isn't some clunky metal box. It looks cool. It's easy to put your phone in and take out of throughout the day, whenever you want privacy. You can't be too careful these days, and the Refuge Ghost Sleeve can help keep you safe. Visit refugeprivacy.com today. Use code ZERO to save 10% off your order. That's refugeprivacy.com, promo code ZERO, for 10% off. 
Let's look around at the evidence uh, for, for a collective death wish. Um, you have written, I think, quite eloquently about the need for a, a revitalized culture, revitalized art. Mm -hmm. Called you a renaissance man, not just because you care about the renaissance, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, finance, government, you, you've been around. Political philosophy, uh, you have an understanding of how it all kind of fits together. And if one of those big chunks is missing, then it's probably, you know, the regime or the sect is not going to probably be long for this world. Yeah. So you look around at art, you look around at culture. Uh, it's pretty limp right now. Um, it's uh, lots of people you could blame for it. You could blame the Zoomers. You can blame the Chinese. You can blame TikTok. You can blame the Wokies. You can blame tech eating Hollywood and turning everyone into like a, just an avatar who they can license and own for the rest of all perpetuity throughout the universe. Um, why is it so bad and how do we turn it around? Why is it so bad? I guess I, you mean like the art in particular, why is it so bad? I don't know. High culture. I, you know, I, I was thinking about, you know, I kind of had this thought just today as I was driving here. So I always, pretty much always have on one or the other classical music station. So I'm subscribed to Sirius, which is kind of getting a little bit woke and just playing too much yeah. And then there's a terrific Dallas classical station, but they had on something, a piece I wasn't interested in. So I click over to Sirius and they start playing the Alban Berg Violin Concerto. Now, like, I'm pretty broad-minded when it comes to classical music. Like, I can get right through Stravinsky and then some later, you know, Benjamin Britten, Elgar, you know, obviously Rachmaninoff, but temporarily even later than Stravinsky. But I got to draw the line at Berg and Schoenberg. I can't, I just can't take it. I'm thinking, why would anybody write this? At best, it sounds like this sort of weird movie music like you're setting the mood as the guy creeps through the hall with a chef's knife yeah so this, like, is, this is like atonal yeah and i just like what's the and i guess the one answer is just because everything else had been done yeah people thought i just gotta i gotta train and you know part of it does come from the epite le bourgeois ethos in in france in the 19th century which you have to shock the bourgeoisie um, Tom Wolfe wrote two outstanding books on this subject, The Painted Word, 1975, and Bauhaus to Our House, 1981, in which he described in very comic terms, the kind of reduction of first of art, meaning basically painting wall art, you know, uh, into just the expression of dry theory and architecture into, you know, going from beautiful, sublime, uplifting things to just glass boxes everywhere, or even worse, you know, brutalism, con poured concrete structures. And I always thought, God, it would be great if he were to write one about music. He never did. But I, I, maybe part of it is just everything's been done, you know. He, there's another great piece you can read by Wolf too, called, which was from Harper's, I think, in 1989. After the Bonfire of the Vanities was a massive success, um, you know, Wolf went on record in the early 70s basically saying the novel is dead. The novel's dead because novelists have just started writing these incredibly solipsistic little, you know, let me tell you about my innermost feeling that had no plot, no substance. They didn't do what they used to do, which was go out, find things, talk to people, report, and present a picture of the world. So like the 100,000 yeah, footed Yeah, the beast. stalking the billion footed beast billion is what footed. it was yeah, called. It. It's like, so having said the novel was dead, then he wrote a novel that was successful and the stalking the billion footed beast was this sort of triumphalist manifesto saying, I told you it could be done. I did it. And in that he has long passages about how the novel just became more and more circumscribed and narrow and, and boring. And it just lost its cultural significance. Now, Wolf asked for and called upon people to go out and, you know, write the, his kind of novels. And really, nobody did. Um, um, I had the idea to do it a long time ago. I never did it because life happens. And, you know, I had a million reasons not to do it. Um, I, I wrote about this recently uh, in an online journal called I Am 1776, just saying, you know, Wolf was right, however long ago it was, gosh, uh, 30 years ago, 
And so if you, you know what, we should do this now. Well, you know, let's, let's instead of more money for this or that similar, you know, policy paper or policy conference, well, why don't we just find some young, hungry guys who don't need that much money and give them some money and let's see what they can go out and find and write about. Um, and this response to it was tremendous. Like, I got a lot of mail from people. People talked to me and said, like, that piece, I just dashed it off and thought, man, no one's going to yeah. care. You know? Young people were really moved and inspired by that. And I'm hoping somebody picks it up and actually does something. How about it. old people? Did they yeah. write and say, like, who, who can I give money to? Like, I got a pot of money right here. I don't know. Um, that, that's good. I mean, we got to, you know, there is some energy on the right. And I, I know you're involved in a lot of this, so you know about it. But, like, stuff like the Passage Prize, they're trying to find talent. They don't, they don't have a ton of money to give away, but they have some. They're trying to find talent and identify it, see who, see who rises to the top. Now, I'm not young. Um, I'm, at best, middle-aged. Um, but I think I am going to go and write a book, like a, a Tom Wolf book next, or not, if not next, like soon, like within yeah. a half a year, I'm going to start the research. But it's going to take a long time. Like what Wolf says is, I remember this very well. He says, it got to the point where writers believed that, 90, that 95% of good writing is talent in the sacred crucible, like somehow in your brain or in your soul, and 5% was material, what you're writing about. And he says, the real, uh, the real um, ratio, I suspect, this is Wolf talking, is more like 65% material and 35% talent in the sacred crucible. Yeah. Well, this so is it's a issue. huge difference. And to get yeah. that 65%, you have to do what Tom Wolf did, which is expensive. This is one of the reasons that I didn't do it when I first had the idea when I was 23. Is like, how do you go and research a book like this while you have a you, job? You can't. But then if you don't have a job, how do you pay the bills? And I didn't have a patron or anything. I know Wolf did it by being so popular in the 60s and writing some bestsellers that he got rich enough that he could then just go, all right, I'm just going to go research a book for a few years. And, and he could afford it. Well, he also had the psychological fortitude yeah. or yeah. at least the inclination. I mean, yeah. I think this is a problem. You know, you got a lot of these, these young guys and their heart is... is trying to approach the right place they understand sort of what the what the problem is they want to break through the suck and um they sit behind their laptops in their bedrooms and yeah. they have these sort of and they're inside their heads and it's very difficult you know for a young person to sort of so this is open the door go outside encounter the this strangers is going to tick them off because they're going to think that i'm just an out of touch old man criticizing them but i honestly do believe even though a lot of it's extremely good and extremely insightful there's just like too much twitter commentary and too much Substack yeah. opining yeah. right so I, I was recently somewhere that i probably can't talk about with people i can't mention who they were but one of them said um that he went and he did a long reported piece on the Blake Masters campaign. Mm -hmm. And he spent like a month with the Blake Masters campaign. And, you know, it was just got packed loads of detail into this piece, right? And, and it was pretty long. And it was a very big success. He's like, I can't do that. And, you know, it wouldn't have cost a ton of money, but the guy's got to have enough money to fly around, to stay at hotels, to feed himself and all of that. He's like, I can't do that without some kind of backing. In the golden age of, you know, journal, when Wolf gets started, it's the 60s, magazines paid a lot of money, right? You could, you could have make a pretty good living, right? There was an audience. Esquire, New a, York. There was a mid-tier, sort right? of generally That's educated. That's not true anymore. Yeah. But that's the kind of thing I think we need to see more of. And so I, you know, I just said, yeah, let's, let's fund this kind of thing so that we do have talented guys that are writing Substacks and Twitter threads. Instead, you know, I'm sure some of them are probably a little awkward and maybe wouldn't fare that well in the real world trying to be reporters and talk to people and meet people. But some of them aren't, right? It would be really good yeah, at it. Yeah. Let's get them out there. Yeah. And, you know, they might, they might encounter something other than this sort of, like, 
doomer romanticism yeah. that is just filling so many brains right now, you know? And yeah, yeah, I, I, we all read our Nietzsche and we all yeah. sort of read our, our to take your pick memoirs of like battle. And it's, it is kind of a bummer that you can't just like go find a spot to do that if that's what you want to do. But, um, but maybe you don't need to like go to the jungles of Africa and like kill no. kill cannibals in order to like be a man. Well, I mean, a, just a, to like, get back to Wolf, as he said, there, there's so many astonishing things happening in America at any given time. The, yeah. the amount of material is unbelievably rich. Yeah. What blew him away, he said about the novel, is that you know from his perspective, the '60s was the most amazing time he'd you know in, he'd ever seen, and it, was, it offered so much material to so many potential novelists that he was astonished that huge novels weren't written about the hippie movement or about you know the urban riots or about you know the space program. So Wolf writes them all, but as nonfiction, right? He writes The Electric Kool-Aid Access Test, still the best movie about the hippie movement ever. Not movie, sorry, book, but it's nonfiction. It's written in an extremely crazy experimental style, in part because he's describing people tripping on acid all the time. And so he wants to kind of write like it, like that. Right? So he writes the right stuff about the space program, you know. And, he writes uh, the, the uh, late in the game. Well, he actually, you know, radical chic and Mao Maoing the flat catchers about the, the race riots and the racial strife in the cities and stuff. He's like, where were the novel? And he he reports. I have to take him at his word because I don't know. But he reports that there were publishers all over Manhattan, like who were salivating, licking their chops at the possibility of getting these novels. They were assuming that there's still enough really ambitious young people who would just bring them something. They would, you never even heard of the guy. You'd be like, I spent three years as a truck driver, two years chopping wood in Oregon, and then one year on a lobster boat in Maine, and now I finished my book, and I'm 27, and you know, here it comes to you out of the slush pile, and they realize, oh my God, I've discovered the next whatever. So they never found them. They, people just were not writing that way anymore. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's, there's like a disinterest in the human that is, that is eating away at the culture. Um, you know, and... and Whatever you want to say about the 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 the, the mixed legacy of Christianity in the West, um, insofar as yes, you know, certain certain type of Christian is definitely inclined to say like, you know what, I'm disinterested in the world. Yeah, just not going to really participate. But having that disinterest in the human and preferring to just sort of like I don't know, just just consume sort of flashing images or scroll through things that are just kind of an abstract representation of of really human things you can't really have art if you if you just you know ah, don't really want to leave the house don't really want yeah. to go to a dance no, don't can't. want to start a band don't want to don't want to do it yeah i mean the only thing i think i feel like i have any standing to speak to in a way is, is the writing because while i am a huge lover of music and i have a decent grasp of music theory just from taking college level classes on it like i don't like you know, you learn how to, you know, what a semitone scale is, what a mode is, and all of this stuff. And I remember all of that. But if you were to ask me, like, can you write me a two-minute, you know, partita or whatever, I, I, I would have no idea even how to start. There's no part of my brain where I can conceptualize that. But I can sit down with a score open and read it normally. So I don't know where there's a block in there somewhere. The same thing with, like, visual arts. I think like every little boy in his heart wants to be good at drawing. I know I did. I really, really wanted to be good at drawing when I was a kid. And I just was bad. It just never, I never could control my, everything looked off. It just was like pretty wretched. So I have no, like, I'm, I'm the classic Philistine who goes to museum. You know, I know what I like. But I know a little bit about it because I took art history classes. So I sort of know the periods. I know who the major players are. I know what the subject matter. But writing is the one thing that, 
And it sounds like you remembered, which is usually not the, the yeah. modal college. So, like, I don't know what to tell you know budding composers or musicians out there. I have no idea like what advice yeah. I would give them. Yeah. I don't know what I would tell a budding you know visual artist. But I I I, I have a lot of well-meaning, if if not particularly uh, helpful, advice to young writers. Well, let's talk about the books. You've got a number of them uh, of of varying sizes and subject matters. Uh, start with the suit. Yeah. There's. I mean, what what happened to suit culture? That's that seems to be dead, but not entirely dead, but dying. Yeah, it um every clothing style has a kind of a life cycle. What's what's interesting is that this is the first time in a long time where something isn't being born out of the death of the prior one, right? So yeah. the suit culture as we know it today is really born in the 20s and 30s. Probably by the time you get to the 1930s, the basic aesthetic is set and it never changes. A few little things change. Lapels get wider, skinnier, ties and blah, 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 but it's more or less set. Um what killed it was you know, casualization, the advent of business casual, the decline in office work, the techies becoming the most prestigious and powerful people and never wearing them, you know, going on, uh, going on stage at your earnings, your major earnings conference in a t-shirt or a hoodie or a turtleneck, you know, Jobs and Mark Zuckerberg and all these guys. Cargo shorts. Yeah. I mean, that was very, very, and the, so the richest, most powerful people running corporations, you know, aren't wearing it and basically saying it's the sure, I mean, well, again, Wolf, uh, I remember just he he describes in one of his pieces, you know, um, the meeting you know, at, at Il Fornaio in Palo Alto, which is an Italian restaurant where like there's a lot of you know VC meetings and stuff going on, right? Um, you know the bean counter, the lawyer, or the investor from the east if he's got on a jacket, much yeah. less a tie. And that yeah. person is immediately the lowest status person in the room, right? <laughs> Roll forth that I think in 2000. So this is a long time ago. Um, all of that stuff. And then, you know, I mean, look, the business casual was a fad that came in. It was like a perk for office workers. Okay, so you don't have to wear a tie on. You could go, you don't have to wear a tie or a jacket on. You don't have to wear a suit on Friday. On Friday to, to sort of increase yeah. like a the weekend. fellow you can feeling kind of head out for the in, weekend. in the office. And that became standard policy at a lot of big companies in the 90s. Yeah. Um, and then many of them killed it after the financial crisis because they kind of thought, well, we're getting back into suits to show that we're serious. Mm -hmm. But... The, I, the rise of techism, and I mean, what, what, what? I think work from home maybe has killed the suit forever. I noticed the last time I went to an office. Well, the last time I went to an office every day was the White House, 2017, 2018. Everybody out on a jacket, a suit and tie. I mean, I was just, and it'll be the last place where that's true. The highest reaches of government. Before that, I was in corporate Manhattan, not on Wall Street, but in what I consider to be the real Wall Street, because it's where all the big finance firms are. It's basically the East Side between Fifth and Park, 46th and 57th, and. Ties were already in steep decline then. But what got, the guys just wore, they were, they had suits. They wore the pants to a suit and an open neck dress shirt. And if it was cold, a jacket. But if it wasn't cold, no jacket. And that's the way, you know, I went to suit. I went to work every day in a jacket and tie, in a suit and tie, because that's just the way I liked it and was comfortable. But I have a feeling it's not, it's not coming back in that way. And so the suit's just going to be completely relegated to ceremonial and you know special occasion functions. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can have formal wear yeah. that doesn't just look like a 1930s suit with minor variations, right? You can have some other some other yeah. sort of innovation, but it seems like formal wear as such is like not really surviving. Yeah, I mean, if by, if you mean formal wear, like strictly speaking, you know, black tie. Well, just like men. you are needing to present yourself yeah. in an elevated way uh, that that conveys some sort of no of it's special. Not. I mean, it'd be interesting to know. I'm out of touch with this now, but like, what happens at job interviews in Manhattan now? Yeah. Like, do you still expected to show up in a suit and tie? There used to be a time where even if your office was business guy or the place you were hiring, 
or, or you know you were interviewing for, it would have been almost a deal killer to show up not in a suit because it meant you're not showing the proper respect for this firm for yeah. whom you are from whom you are asking for something. Uh, I don't know if that if that's true anymore. Like, Do you think some of this is just like feminization, like like Bill Gates wearing his like his, yeah. his sweater? The techies this. definitely had a definite you know um, impact on it yeah. for sure. You know, I mean, what happens when you go to a, I mean, do people go to banks and actually meet loan officers in person to borrow money? But in those days, it used to be like you would put on your, your best your best clothes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it really wasn't that long ago when you go outside, every man had a hat on. Yeah. Even well, it, it's actually even, even longer it than you hat. think. It's, uh, yeah, I guess. It's like you almost have to go back to the 50s for that. Yeah. There's a sort of a myth that JFK killed the hat. Not true. Hats were already in decline. Right. Um, actually, the myth is, it gets it so wrong. They said, JFK did not wear a hat to his inauguration, therefore he killed the hat. In fact, one of the only times JFK ever wore a hat in his life was to his inauguration. Yeah, <laughs> right? it's the legend. It's that he didn't wear them the rest of the... Whereas Eisenhower pretty much always had a hat on when he was outdoors. This is just an earlier generation, older school. JFK did not like them. And, you know, the 60s was kind of the hat-mageddon in a way. By the end of the 60s, like, it's become a thing that you do to make a statement or it's just your personal style. Only the pimps yeah. wearing the hats. Vladimir Putin called the U.S. dollar's drop in dominance objective and irreversible during the recent BRICS summit in South Africa, as Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa formally agreed to use local currencies instead of the U.S. dollar. It's the first shoe to fall. As demand for the dollar weakens, the buying power of the dollar weakens. That's why Birch Gold Group is busier than ever. Investors and savers are looking to harness the power of physical gold, held in a tax-sheltered IRA. Text JAMES to 989898 for your free info kit on gold. With thousands of happy customers, an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, and countless five-star reviews, you can count on Birch Gold to help you navigate transitioning an existing IRA or 401k into an IRA in gold. As the U.S. dollar continues to receive pressure from foreign countries, digital currency, and central banks, arm yourself with information on how to protect your savings. Text JAMES to 989898 to claim your free info kit now. So you wrote a book about suits. Uh, you did not write a book about wine. It's early yet, though. Yeah. Uh, you're no, big, I doubt I'll ever write a book. You're a big wine guy. Yeah. Are you enough of a wine guy to write a book to go go full Roger Scruton and just like write I don't a, think a so. wine book? I don't. You Why know. not? You're just you're just gonna drink it. There are a lot of people who just know way. I don't know what I would say that I, that could add to it. You know what I mean? I'm like I don't have any unique insights about yeah. wine. Um, I could say like these are the great bottles that I've drunk, but that's just sort of solipsistic. And well, dumb. I don't know. I mean, I think <laughs> there's you know there's the, cocktail culture yeah. is still going very strong. I think beer culture is like totally out of control with all these IPAs and everything. I and never, it seems like the yeah, wine it is. beer culture has exploded in a crazy way. I can't yeah, keep up. And with the it. wine is the wine is is kind of pulling up the rear, which is um, I don't know. Is a good like you know I got some Mediterranean blood floating around in there somewhere. Like the Mediterranean. <laughs> It was always about like that sort of mid-tier like alcohol content. You yeah. got your grappa, you got your wine, you got your ouzo, you got your rock, you got limoncello. You know things that are stronger than beer, weaker than yeah. than liquor. Although grappa is pretty. Well, yeah, I guess it is. It is pretty strong, but it's not vodka, um, and it's not yeah. gin, and it's not uh, it's not bourbon. No, I just I don't I don't know that I I, I just. I don't have anything I think especially unique or interesting to say about wine, so I, I've never thought about writing about it. So. Strike one. Strike. This minus 50 Renaissance Man points. Okay. Uh, no, okay. I mean, I still know something about it. Yeah. Um, okay. Sorry. Sorry. That's all right. If it's right. something no, occurs you, you, to me. You, you, get one, you get one pass. We'll just... Actually, no, I have written about it in the following sense. I did write um, 
it was just an article, but it was a pretty long article about kind of about the history and the changes in Napa Valley. Yeah. So it's something I wrote for Claremont Review of Books, 2010, I want to say. It was a long, it's an old, old review. And I always meant to revisit it because the guy who, it, it actually covered several books, but the one of the books, the guy has written several sequels. I always remember, I can't remember his name. It's like Galloway or Galway or something like that. Uh, and I always meant to do a follow-up to take the story kind of into the modern age, and I never did that. I think our friend Charles, who edits the CRB, would would like to have that if I yeah, ever got yeah, around sure to it. Would. I just haven't had to. Part of it is like, you know, Napa went in a direction that I don't like. Like I loved, I grew up, I, mean, I say I grew up on Napa wine, like please don't picture me like drinking this explains it at, everything. at five years old. But, you know, when I got into wine in college, like I, lo- I went to college very close to Napa Valley and I could get there fast. And I went all the time. And there's just a lot more stuff in the style that I like. And then, you know, this is a familiar story, but the Parkerization, in other words, the rise of Robert Parker and his certain taste and how if you got a high score from Parker, you, you, your wine would sell out and you could charge a much higher price so that people started chasing Parker stores and altering the style of the wine. Making and chasing it, scores. Yeah, chasing scores and making it more fruit forward, less age worthy and so on. And so yeah. a lot of them just went in that direction. And I, Napa declined from my perspective. There's still a handful, maybe a dozen, maybe not even a dozen that I like and the rest of them I just don't, I don't care about. Um, but so you Bordeaux, can be a wine snob without being wine obsessed. Yeah. That's like best of both but worlds. But Bordeaux, to me, is still king. A real wine connoisseur would say Burgundy is superior to Bordeaux. I that that alone makes me suspect in the wine world. Like you like Bordeaux better than Burgundy? Like what kind of philistine are you? I was like, oh, I just you know, what are you gonna do? So California wines still haven't cracked the top. Uh, there are a few, like I say, that I like a great deal, um, but and I will seek out and I will buy um, and drink. And drink, yeah, but no, I would I would put Bordeaux ahead of California. Interesting. Uh, all right, moving down the uh, down the list of works, uh, Flight ninety three. It was an essay. It became a, a slim volume after the Flight ninety three yes. election. Yes, we are now after after the Flight ninety three election, and we'll get into the stakes and and the the coup and everything. Yeah, so Flight ninety three was written in um, published in September. Uh, so almost almost um, we're almost at the anniversary. I think. This may even be the anniversary. Gosh, I don't know. I think it was September 6th. Yeah, um, it's coming up. It was published. Uh, We're here already. Yeah, I don't even know what the day is today. <laughs> the date is today. It's so bad. But uh, 2016, so that is, what, seven years ago now. Yeah. And then after which, Roger Kimball, our friend Roger Kimball, loved it so much that he said, I want to publish that um, as a book. But it's only like 5,000 words, a little less. And I had written a follow-up because people, you know, there was a huge uproar over the flight 93 outcry and i wrote about eight days later or published about about eight days later something i called the restatement on flight 93 just basically saying here are all the things people have said and i'll answer them thematically without naming names and then i wrote about a ten thousand word something that i called roger didn't like this but he let me get away with it um i called it the pre-statement on flight 93 because it was like well if the flight 93 election is we're in a terrible position and it's all going very badly and you know this is a crisis, where's the positive vision? So I laid out a kind of positive vision. It was just meant to be a kind of distillation of, I, I know people are getting tired of hearing this phrase, but it fits the facts, so I'm just going to use it anyway. It was just kind of meant to be a distillation of West Coast Straussian doctrine. Like, what is nature? What is human nature? What is the basis for political legitimacy? What is natural right? What were the founders' principles? Why are they not? What are the limits to the founders' principles and so on? Where is the left trying to take us right now? And so on. It's a pretty tight compact. I mean, it's 10,000 words, but considering the ground it covers, it was fairly tight. And that came out 
in, I think, February of 2019. Very slim little volume. It's not much. Um, and, uh, you know, I like it because it's, 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 like, it's short. There are, you know, my next, my book after that was not short. Not short. Uh, and if you want to just get a kind of overview of what we're all about at the Claremont Institute, and I think many of my colleagues at Hillsdale, that's a good first place to go. Yeah, I just I don't, I don't want to dr- dwell on this for a moment uh, because there was an outcry, and it was like, how dare you invoke yeah. this? This is this is uh, panic. This is uh, yeah. you, almost inviting a sort of um, uh, response that is in kind to the hijacking of Flight 93. Um, and then you followed up with a, a positive vision, and it's uh, you know I, I think a lot of the critics who were very upset by the tone, uh, it turns out that, you know, they, they were so upset because um, you wanted to get across the severity of the crisis and the fact that things were moving in a direction where, you know, whether you want to call it eating the seed corn or, or yeah. cutting into bone, really going after the, the fundaments of natural I think right. they were also... And these are people who, like, don't even believe that that's a thing. And so, uh, on the one hand, they, they, they found your rhetoric to be irresponsible, but on the other hand, uh, of course they were going to find it to be uh, blown out of proportion if they didn't believe that such, such a thing as natural right existed or that it was really being attacked by the regime. Right. It's both. Or some don't believe it exists. Um, but I think more of the never-Trump critics of the Flight 93 election do believe natural right exists. Or they... By the way, just for the audience... That's a you know semi-technical term. It just means the notion that right and wrong, good and evil, just and unjust, legitimate and illegitimate, exist by nature independent of men's will. That whatever you think of it doesn't matter. It's there, and reasoned investigation can discern what it is. It's not willed by man, and we're not we're not in. This is the opposite of the Nietzschean territory, right? We don't yeah. create right and wrong. We don't say this shall be right and that shall be wrong because I say it. It's you investigate nature, human nature in particular, and you find out what right and wrong are. And the whole concept of natural right, if not the phrase, traces to Socrates. Although Aristotle does use the phrase explicitly in those exact terms. This is where we get the phrase. Well, but natural this, right. this is sort of the the, the problem that that uh, that liberals are are going through right now. Is I think I think you're right. A lot of them you would say, well, of course I believe that we have yeah. these sort of innate yeah. rights whatever and, but the pie keeps growing and suddenly yeah. you know well we get to add to these things by by discovering them or pointing them out or or taking pity on someone or sympathizing with them and well you know you deserve to have and that's a some criticism more rights. and that's then a this criticism thing keeps, from... keeps blowing up and so you start out from something that's like supposed to be innate and then it turns out to be right. just as and that's a criticism that the right-wing opponents of natural rights say like yeah. look once you start declaring rights and saying and this is what Gottfried has argued like well if the pursuit of happiness is a natural right then why what's to stop anyone from saying my happiness requires X, therefore X must be a right. And the answer is? The answer, well, okay, the answer is obviously what he's describing happened, okay? The list of rights expanded well beyond what, let's say, John Locke or James Madison would have ever countenanced or believed. The question is, was that inevitable? And I think Gottfried and people of that cast of mind or that point of view think it was inevitable, that the whole thing was a mistake from the beginning. Any, you should have seen that it was going to degenerate it into this, or maybe even if you didn't foresee it, now that it has happened, you looking back, you have to realize that it was inevitable and that it was a mistake and we got to start off in a new direction. I think what Locke, all the founders, et cetera, would say is it doesn't have to degenerate into that, right? We are, they believed they could discern a fixed human nature through reason investigation that confers these rights over here that are, that are real and knowable by the human mind, and it does not entail these rights over here. Now, that's what they would say. Um, they could have been wrong. Maybe the inevitability, I don't buy the inevitability argument necessarily, um, but that's, that's, that's certainly what they would say. 
There was also now, just our, the wait, practical wait. situation where you look at the American people, you look at this this uh, land mass full of people of a certain kind of culture, you want to uh, improve the uh, regime. Um, you, you can't just plop something on top of them that doesn't fit, right? you got to yes. go swing now, with the direction. But since people. we're Claremont Institute affiliated, I'm a Claremont Institute senior fellow, and we need to say the following, that the Claremont Institute and its scholars have an answer to this, which is to say the whole idea was corrupted by outside influences. Okay, I don't think there's any doubt that that's true, that the importation of essentially Hegelian philosophy into the, the West or the, you know, our, our, our country um, corrupted the founders' vision via progressivism and, and so on. But that still raises the question of why was it so, if this was the, if the founders and the philosophers they relied on had found the permanent truth, why was it so amenable or susceptible to corruption? That's a good question. And it may be, the answer may be, that everything is susceptible to corruption. Nothing is going to yeah, last the forever. The truth is hard. It's it's right? hard to have the discipline. I mean, to if you if you could if you could ask George Washington right now, do you think the United States will go on forever? Like literally forever? This is the best regime. You have finally solved the political problem, and this will never end. I don't think he would say yes to that. I think he was too wise to he to yeah. not to know that. No, of course it will eventually fail you because human nature is just imperfect. Well, in a sense, you would almost expect yeah. the best regime to be the most vulnerable in some yeah. ways to being taken down. Maybe. I, okay. Yeah. And that brings us to the stakes. Yeah. Uh, big book. Um, big book. Not not as despised as Flight 93. I don't uh, know that ruffled, it was, ruffled, I don't think feathers, it was widely as, read. To well, be a perfect I don't balance. know. I mean, it seemed to be, uh, it seemed to be moving well, around. Let me put time. it this way. I had high hopes and ambitions for that book, which were not fulfilled. I suppose every author would say that. Like, if your book doesn't <laughs> sell a zillion, I mean, sales are one thing. I would have welcomed the sales. It sold okay. Like, yeah. I made some good money off that book, and I bought some good wine with the money I made off that book. So there's that. It could, could be worse. Um, but more than sales, like I was hoping it would really start a conversation on the right that the, everybody nominally on the right would feel that they had to respond to it in some way, and they didn't. Like, Do it you was, think it was like an oh shucks he's right, and then kind of like slapping the think, shoulder? I think at least fifty percent was TLDR. You know, too long didn't read. Right. It's just like it's this big doorstop. It's four hundred pages or whatever. People were just like, okay. Now I've heard from a lot of people who did read it that they said they thought. It went on too long, and that a third of the material could be, or some, you know, you pick your number, could be cut. Um, maybe. I, I, of course, I wrote it. I read it. I re edited it several times. I did end up, I think when I finished the manuscript, it was 160,000 words. Mm -hmm. Going back through it, just by myself, before an editor You're told like, me to I do anything. I did cut it. Yeah. I paired it by 20,000 words. But that's yeah. still 140, which is big. I, yeah. I totally agree. But, you know, it said everything I wanted to say. So, I don't know. I'm, I'm always accused of writing too long. And... I guess ultimately, I just don't care. Would you recant anything from no. that book? No, no. Now more than ever, the stakes. Yeah, I mean, if anything, it's it's. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a, I can say this safely because I'm not going to say how, but like it's written esoterically. There's a lot implied in it that is not said on the surface, which no one's bothered to figure out, or maybe never will. Do you think that true writing about political matters today has to be esoteric? Yes, you got to hide. But, but it's the a problem. It's a problem, right? Because. If we're in an urgent crisis, as I believe we are, you know, writing, writing esoterically for the audience, if you don't know the phrase, it sort of means like writing between the lines. You have a surface, but then you have a depth that's semi-hidden and that only a very careful reader can understand, which means only a minority of your readers will understand. Like the Flight 93 is not particularly esoteric. It's like a call to action. You must do this, right? It's an exhortation. People say it's radical, but like, what does it exhort you to do? Vote. Right? These are the same people who talk about our democracy, <laughs> and they're mad because I wrote an exhortation to vote. 
But because it, it wasn't, it wasn't vote for the Democrats, nor was it just a a, a completely banal, you know, just just go vote. Doesn't matter. Like I said, no, vote for this guy. You know, that's right. that's beyond the pale. It, it wasn't to just go get yeah. the sticker. It, it was to yeah, actually make yeah, a actually consequential vote. Make a consequential vote. Right. Um, so that's a call to action. So if you're in an urgent situation, you have to, you know, you can't write esoterically because people don't under, if everybody doesn't understand it, it's not doing you any good. But the more understandable it is by your friends, then the more understandable it is by your enemies. And so the risk to you personally goes up and yeah. to your side and to your affiliated institutions. On the other hand, if you do write esoterically, you protect yourself to a degree, you protect your, your side, your institutions, your friends. But if people don't get it, what good have you really done? I mean, it's one thing to be esoteric in ancient world or the Middle Ages, where you're basically writing for future generations of philosophers out a few centuries. Hey, who cares if nobody really figures you out for 100 years, yeah, 200 years? It's okay. As long as right. the people you need to find, find it, and they philosophize adequately, you're not trying to reform the world or change the course of things. But if you are trying to change the course of things, you're in a real pickle. I mean, I get at this directly in the review that I did of regime change. This book has been... Um, I'm knocked around pretty hard in the reviews, I think, and, and to some extent unfairly, because even though I don't agree with a lot of what Deneen says, and I think there are a lot of begged questions in the text, I admire and appreciate and I'm grateful for the fact that he took this on. Yeah. Right? He stood up and he said, we've got a serious problem. We've got to start thinking about ways to do fundamental change. Nobody wants to hear that. They want to hear, they want to hear that like, well, we'll get, get the right candidate in 2024 and then we'll get all, everything's back on track. There's nothing fundamentally wrong that requires fundamental change. And it takes courage and you're going to get uh, beaten up for saying what Deneen said. And I'm glad he did. And I think it's useful. And I think we, we need more people to do that. Well, and at the same time, I mean, you know, people don't, people don't want to hear that. But another thing people don't want to hear is, well, ultimately we have to actually encounter each other face to face and just start hammering away at this stuff through the practice of, of Republican politics, small R Republican yeah. politics. Because if we don't do it that way, guess what our options are? Yeah. One, waiting for a Superman who never arrives. Two, uh, aligning with uh, some sort of demagogue. Uh, three, uh, just like blood in the streets. Uh, yeah. You know, and and sure enough, we've got we've got people on the left saying, "Oh, don't worry, we don't need to do politics. We're just going to create a a, a, ca a sacred caste system." Or, "Oh, we don't need to do politics. Uh, we're just going to uh, terraform humanity out of human nature using technology that we control." Yeah. Uh, and then on the right, you got, "Oh, no, don't worry. Like some uh, the man of destiny will rise out of somewhere yeah. or another." And then, which could happen. I don't well, rule it out. Of course, it could. I happen, don't rule it out. But it's like you know, what is, what is, nobody wants the the boring Machiavelli answer, says, which is in, you got to actually just yeah. do the politics. In Prince Thirteen, he says. Um, you should you should never let yourself fall with the expectation that someone else will pick you up. Okay, that, that answers that point. I think pretty. So the man of destiny may emerge, but to just like waiting for Godot. Or yeah. um, this you know gets back to something I said earlier. I like and the kids are going to get mad at me, but like you know, Twitter Substack and even the most insightful Twitter Substacks are not going to get it done. You really are going to need to get involved in your local community. And I'm a hypocrite here because I don't do this, right? I don't run for school board. I don't run for county commissioner. A lot I, of people live in cities where doing that is just an act I don't suicide. do any of that, right? Because I think, first of all, I'm, I just know, I don't think I'd be very good at it. But to the extent that I have anything to contribute in however many years I have left, my the best use of my time, I can make the biggest difference. I can do the best work that I can do in other realms. But if, if we're going to save humanity, if we're going to save America, if we're going to save ourselves, if we're going to save our civilization or preserve any part of it, this is going to have to be done at a very mundane level by a lot of people. And it is, it's, it, it, it's, it's hard work and it's, there's an element of drudgery to it. And it's much more 
fun and somehow satisfying to, you know, do Twitter Substack. But guys, you're not going to make it if that's all you do. Yeah. I don't think. I sadly don't think that. Uh, well, I think you're right. Uh, we should spend at least a minute here on uh, on the coming coup. Yeah. The coup that came. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the coup that was. Um, you know, obviously, there's all kinds of, of persistent nonsense about what what magic words you can and cannot say when discussing yeah. the uh, election situation. Um, I've been thinking a lot about uh, about like legal but unjust. <laughs> so there's like there's like uh, asset forfeiture. Yeah. Right, which is I'm a cop and I see you doing something that that seems suspicious to me for whatever reason, I uh, I pull you over, you know, and uh, and even before I get you downtown, even before I slap the cuffs on, I am just like cleaning you out. I'm yeah. taking all of the property that you have yeah. on you that I've encountered. It's impounded. Maybe me and my friends enjoy it later on. Uh, there are all kinds of tales of corruption. You know, you can back the blue and still realize that like. Asset forfeiture, like not not just, it's not right, but yeah. it's legal, right. and there are ways to do it, and it's a, a prevalent pla- practice, and it has is reshaping the way criminal justice. Yeah. Is uh, so the the phrase you that, can see where I'm going. With the this. phrase that I use for the 2020 election is that it was pre-rigged. So I'm a complete believer in the Molly Hemingway book Rigged, in which she doesn't go into any of the controversies that have swirled since the vote took place, Dominion voting or this or that, or she just doesn't talk about it. So let's look at all the things they did in advance to ensure that Donald Trump could not win that election. And, you know, that book did well. I, I, you know, and to me, it's a definitive account. And what's hilarious is, you know, Molly Hemingway, M- Molly, M-O-L-L-I-E. Well, there's another Molly with a Y named Molly Ball who wrote the exact same thing in the February 2021 Time magazine, in which she said how a coalition, like a conspiracy of elites, fortified the 2020 election. And she basically describes how governments, NGOs, foundations, Zuckerbucks, and all these people got to, and the media and tech companies got together to make sure that like certain information would be censored, laws would be changed, mail-in ballots would be allowed, ballot harvesting would be allowed, a get-out-the-vote operation would take place only in Democratic neighborhoods and all, all to make sure that Trump lost and Biden won. And this is great. They basically tell exactly the same story, but when Molly Hemingway says it because she's against it, that's terrible. And it didn't happen, and it's bad. When Molly Ball says it because she's for it, it's great, and we're so glad it happened, and isn't it wonderful? The tale of two Mollies. 30 seconds, what is is happening to us? What's next? Uh, Where are we going to be in a year from now? Uh, A year from now will be September of 2024. I assume Trump will be the nominee. I assume we will be in the last, you know, we'll be in the last days of a presidential campaign. Maybe Biden will be the nominee. Maybe Biden won't. I don't know. Hard to say. Um, it's hard for me. This is, I'm sorry to say this. People are going to get mad and say that I'm being disloyal or whatever. It's hard for me to imagine Trump winning because I think the institutional balance of power is so against him. Everything they did to pre-rig 2020 will still be in place in 2024 and will be fortified with even more fortification. And I don't see a sufficient effort or uh, accomplishments on the Trump side or on the right of the Republican side to overcome that. So I assume we're going to get four more years of whatever it is we have now. And so we beat on. That is literally all the time that we have. Thank you, Michael. At least until next time, that's all we've got. If you found this conversation meaningful, please consider becoming a Blaze TV subscriber to help us create more content. Yum, yum. Go to blazetv.com. Use the code 0hour20, Z-E-R-O-H-O-U-R-2-0 for $20 off your first year of Blaze TV. This is Zero Hour. I am James Polis, and may God have mercy on us all.